Will you pray with me? May your word be our rule and your spirit our teacher and the glory of Christ our single concern. Amen. Our second lesson comes from the book of James, chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Favoritism is, uh, is an odd topic. Um, it's kind of a strange word. It's one of those words that if you say over and over again, it really quickly becomes just a set of sounds. Favoritism, favoritism, favoritism. I'm not sure how many syllables it has. It's kind of an odd word. I've never preached on favoritism before. Favoritism is about who we listen to. It's about who we pay attention to. James, the author of our second lesson, throws favoritism in with adultery and murder. Favoritism is a sin whose corrosive effects actually get at the very heart of the gospel because favoritism has to do with how we treat the people standing right in front of us. It has to do with what we say about them, about who they are. Regardless of their gender, their sexuality, their race, the languages they speak or don't speak, the clothes they wear, the way they smell, how they carry themselves, whether they have charisma, how they vote. Hopefully for a few minutes we will create a space together to let down our defensiveness that seems to just always be up, at least for me, and honestly consider how each of us commits the sin of favoritism, and we will consider together how by not giving into it, we can truly steward the love of God for all people in a pretty profoundly unique way. The book of James is an intercepted letter. It's like a letter that the church didn't really want to fall into the wrong hands. Maybe they're a little embarrassed that it got published It's like a a church memo that got widely circulated, a blazing email that wasn't supposed to be printed and handed out. But somehow it did. At first it had a hard time making it into the canon of Scripture. It isn't a book with much nuanced 
theology. It doesn't coat things in fancy languages. It doesn't have a complicated or dense Christology. Like the Philippians passage is um, a lovely exposition of who Christ is and how the person of Christ informs the life of the church. And James is beautiful in its own way, um, but not in its robust theological Christology. And so it's had a hard time throughout history. In fact, it doesn't really talk about Jesus at all, but it quotes Jesus more than any other letter in the New Testament. To my ears, it sounds the most like a letter that Jesus himself might have written, probably because it quotes him most. But if Jesus was going to write a letter to the churches, I think it would sound something like James's letter, which is maybe evidence uh, in support of the argument that it was Jesus' own brother who wrote the letter, which is remarkable. There are more references to quotes, but Christians, there are more references to the quotes of Jesus than any other letter, but um, it had a hard time making it into the canon of Scripture. And throughout history, there have been a number of people who have tried to get it out. Um, Usually Christians with power throughout history have downplayed the significance of the role of the book of James. Martin Luther called it the letter of straw. In other words, a flimsy or useless letter. It isn't the book I'd turn to right away if I was trying to explain to someone new in the faith what it meant to be a Christian. I would want texts that articulate grace in a really robust way. And James doesn't necessarily do the best job of that. But it is a book that the church has needed and still needs because it reminds Christians what it will look like to carry their faith into the world. It's an inside memo to the church. The text today begins with a really pretty simple and practical situation. A person comes into church wearing rings and fine clothing. They're obviously well-to-do. And a shabby person comes in as well. The wealthy person is given the place of honor and the poor person is told to sit on the ground. You don't need a whole lot of exegetical explanation to understand that situation. It's pretty straightforward. The treatment that these people receive causes James to ask this question though. Do you really believe our Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ Because for James, showing favoritism towards the well-dressed, well-heeled, and wealthy isn't just a matter of, of, of poor taste. It causes him to genuinely wonder if the church he is writing to believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this a matter, is this a matter of you're not doing what you know you're supposed to do? Or are you unaware of how contradictory what you're doing is to following our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It reminded me of when I was, uh, I taught PE for a while in a school or at church, and you'd like tell the kids to line up against the wall, and inevitably some of them are still running around. And the first question is, did you hear me? Because we, they, we, we could have two problems, right? Either you didn't hear me and you don't know you're supposed to be lined up against the wall, or you did hear me and you know you're supposed to be lined up against the wall and you're di- being disobedient. And I get a sense from the rest of James's letter that there's some of this honest curiosity. Maybe there are some people new in the faith who don't understand what Jesus has said about the poor. Do you really believe in 
Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord. Um, is this a problem of you being disobedient, or this, is this a problem of you not quite understanding what it means to follow Christ in faith and repentance? James says, do you really believe? Because if you did, you would not be treating people differently based on their economic situation. And he gives three reasons for this. The first, they're all, they're, they're, they're all a kind of a little bit humorous. Um, the first, he says, God has actually chosen to honor the poor. Basically, if you're going to show favoritism to someone as a Christian, you're going to show favoritism to the poor. Um, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom, but you have dishonored the poor? If you really believe that Jesus is Lord and believe what he did and said, it would probably lead you to more likely show deference to the poor. It reminded me of a passage from a book in C.S. Lewis that I, I could not find. With the tools of the internet at my access, I could not find it. So maybe I've got the author totally wrong. If you recognize it and know where it's from, tell me because I'm so curious. But I believe it's C.S. Lewis who is talking about um, hypocrisy in the church and, and he, you know, he talks about Someone who's just, who just, their, their dream, their vision, what they say is that they want to, they just adore Japanese culture and they want to live in Japan. They love the food. They love everything about it. They think that the Japanese culture is onto something and, and, and they just want to commit themselves to it and they're, they're hoping to be over there as soon as they possibly can be. And then you find out that in their calendar, they're taking Italian classes every Wednesday. And something doesn't line up with what they're saying and what they're doing. And it's the same situation with James where he says, do you really believe this? Because if you did, your actions would be actually the opposite of what you're doing. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, you're blessing the rich. If you're going to show favoritism, wouldn't it be to the advantage of the poor? The second thing he says is, the rich are the worst. Is, 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 uh, he says, is, not the, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? The grain of our culture and of the culture of Rome is so fiercely set in favor of the well-heeled, the well-off, that even when you're following a Lord who has said, blessed are the poor, even when you are oppressed by the rich, it is still difficult to run against the, rain, the grain of advantaging the well-off. In the church's earliest days, it was the rich, the elite, the powerful who were persecuting the church. And yet there was a tendency when they came in to favor them over the poor. He says, one God has chosen the poor. He says, two, the rich are the ones who oppress you. And then finally he says, you do well if you abide by the royal law, the law that is above every law. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are a hundred different cultural, economic, social laws that some we are aware of and some we just obey unconsciously. There are a hundred laws that we might live according to, but the royal law, the law under which every other law is subject, love your neighbor as yourself, stands in great contradiction to favoring the rich over the poor. These are just eight verses from the book of James. Throughout the book, there are 
a handful of examples like this. This is the one about favoring the rich over the poor when they come into church. There's one about neglecting orphans and widows. There's one about how landowners use their land. There's one about merchants making their plans. There's all these practical examples. James calls out the church for creating a community, a reality inside of the church that simply reflected the reality outside of the church. His letter must have been really awkward to read aloud in the congregation, which is usually how these letters were read. They weren't reprinted and you weren't set home with them. They were opened up and read in the midst. In chapter 5, he writes, and this is a church that has wealthy and poor in it. This is a diverse congregation. He writes, come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. The wages you never paid cry out against you. The cry of the harvesters has reached God's ears. James, in his book, paints a picture of what an alternate community might look like. He condemns favoring the rich and commends caring for the orphan and the widow. He condemns becoming angry quickly and he commends being quick to listen. James reminds the church what it means to call Christ Lord and what sort of culture would be created by following Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, we say every week, there is a new creation. And James might reply, yes. And it looks like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a new creation, a new reality. Miroslav Volf puts it this way. There is a reality that is more important than the culture to which we belong. It is God. And the new world that God is creating, a world in which people from every nation and every tribe will gather around the triune God, a world in which every tear will be wiped away and pain will be no more. James calls the church to live faithfully into this new reality rather than into the cultural reality that surrounds them. Do you remember making dioramas in school? That was always a fun, I love those. You'd study the desert for a while learn about the weather and patterns, the habitat, the animals, the plants that live there, and then you'd go home and take your mom's shoes out of the shoebox and cut it up. You'd put some dry, rocky dirt in the bottom and make a cactus out of pipe cleaners, cut up a blue t-shirt and make a little stream through your desert. Jesus spends his ministry describing to us the kingdom of heaven, painting pictures, telling us stories about what it looks like, who's there, what it feels like. What belongs and what doesn't? And the church is a diorama of that kingdom. In Jesus, we're given a picture of the future, a promise of what the kingdom of God will be like, and the church is the foretaste in the here and now of that reality. Jesus, the teacher, gives us instructions for our diorama. The first will be last and the last will be first. He says, giving away your wealth, not piling it up will be honored. He says the valleys will be exalted and the mountains should be made low. He says to Martha, the busybody, slow down, and to Mary, the listener, well done. He puts a child on his knee and he puts the religious elite in their place. And the church that James is writing to has become a diorama of the culture. The rich are given the places of privilege and the poor are relegated to the floor. Wealthy Christians don't treat their employees any differently than their non-Christian counterparts. In other words, the church had become a diorama of the world rather than a foretaste of the kingdom. In your life, in our family lives, in our life together as a church, do the people who encounter us encounter the kingdom of heaven?
is this new creation, this new community, a diorama that reflects the royal law of the kingdom? Does it stand with the oppressed and shun favoritism? In the diorama of our lives, our work and rest balanced in a way that reflects a trust in Christ's lordship. Are we seeking the good of others and loving our enemies as if the crucified Christ were king? Did you see the Mr. Rogers documentary? It's really good, right? I was really inspired by it, which is the point of a documentary, I guess. Um, But I was particularly inspired by him, um, partly because he was an ordained minister. And to be frank, there aren't too many ordained ministers that make headlines for the right reasons. And so it's nice to have someone to look up to like that. Um, So I'm thankful for that. He was ordained in the Presbyterian Church as a specialized minister. Now, I don't know all of the Presbyterian language for, for different posts you can be ordained into. But when you get ordained, you can be ordained as a chaplain in the army or a chaplain in a hospital. You can be ordained as a youth minister or you can be ordained as a a missionary. You get ordained to a position. So Bob and I were ordained as ministers of word and sacrament because we administer the sacrament and we preach the word. And so we are ordained to that position, called to that vocation. And Fred Rogers was ordained to the position of a specialized minister in children's television. And isn't that beautiful? He was convinced, his faith convinced him that, to quote him, the greatest thing we can do is to let people know that they are loved and capable of loving. And he was also convinced of the power of television to influence children. And so he was ordained to the specialized ministry of children's television. And what the world needs right now is a group of people committed to being a diorama that offers the foretaste of the kingdom of the beloved. We need people who are ordained in the name of the crucified Christ, whose royal law is to love their neighbors and their enemies as they love themselves. We need intellectual property attorneys who understand that they don't happen to be there, but that they are ordained to that post. We need third grade teachers ordained to the specialized ministry of caring for vulnerable kids. We need ordained ministers in the PTA and who work in human resources. And whatever you find yourself doing this week, we need you ordained to that post to confess the faith of Christ crucified. Whatever you are doing this week, When you sit down and when you rise up in your coming and in your going, you are ordained and called to love your neighbor and your enemy as yourself. James challenges us to live in a manner worthy of those who believe in Jesus. And I'd say it's impossible. That's how I was feeling. But to close, just listen again to the words of Paul in Philippians. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing of the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, 
but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So get some dirt and a shoebox and pipe cleaners and this week may our lives individually and collectively reflect His.